I do always define myself as a Chicana. I always define myself as a feminist, and I always define myself as a straight. photographer, straight feminist. <laughs> but I, I don't. That, <laughs> but that you that don't is, distinguish one way or the is, other. I don't distinguish one way or the other. I, and I and when you identified someone as lesbian or gay, it was really just a reality. It was a reality, a, and and it's and because they're a, very out and. They self-define yeah. in the same way that I would define as a Chicana and that I would have no problem. Someone said, we're having a wonderful Chicana artist. Uh -huh. I, when I say we're having a wonderful lesbian artist, it's because she defines herself yes. as a lesbian. That's very much a part of that. She wants to be known as a lesbian. I, the reason I say that is because photography for me is very important. I wouldn't think the way I do. I wouldn't make the art I, I make if I were another medium. So it's very important for me to define as a photographer. And, and the others are political realities. I think, you know, for, for either Anglo scholars or Latino scholars, because I had an interesting set to with a Latina who wanted to write about Latina photographers but knew nothing about photography. Oh, no. And I said, I, you know, oh, it goes no. both ways. It's like, for all the scholars out there, do your homework. Exactly. And, and if, if somebody is defining as a Chicana, you have to know what Chicano art is about. Exactly. If somebody's defining as a photographer, you have to know photography. Somebody's defining as a feminist, it helps if you know the women's movement. So that's why I'm saying that. It's important for me to define as those things because I do see myself as working within communities and all of the all of the, the communal identities are as important as my own individual identity. Hi, and welcome to Articulated. I'm Ricky Gomez, and I work as the Latino Collections Archivist here at the Archives of American Art. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. Since 1958, the Archives of American Art has been building the largest collection of oral histories related to the visual arts in the world. These more than 2,500 long-form interviews give witness to the history as it unfolded through the voices of the figures who shaped and reimagined it. This episode is the third in a series of six each curated by a contemporary artist in response to, and in conversation with, past speakers from the Archives' oral history program. Our guest is Mari Hernandez, a photographer based in San Antonio, who leads us through the 1997 oral history of Kathy Vargas, another San Antonio resident. Vargas is a Chicana feminist artist who makes use of photography. Her signature, hand-colored, multi-exposure works create a wide variety of aesthetic, cultural, and social threads to examine the possibilities of representation, inclusivity, and activism through art. In this episode, Hernandez activates those many threads to bring Vargas's life and achievements into focus. Listen to history through Mari Hernandez's headphones. One of the first times I worked with Kathy Vargas was in 2016 when she curated an exhibition titled A Woman's Place. The exhibition brought together 15 intergenerational Latina artists whose work spoke to women's issues and the presence of women artists in a male-dominated art world. From that moment, I knew Kathy was someone that I could look to as a source of inspiration. At the time, I wasn't fully aware of the important work Kathy had been doing for decades as an artist, curator, educator, and activist in our community, 
After listening to her oral history, I realized the many ways in which our paths and experiences in life and in art align. As a young emerging artist, I was hungry for inspiration and guidance. I was seeking artists and art that reflected my own experiences as a young Chicana coming to understand identity and its intersection with politics and place. One of the things I am curious about is how artists develop their artistic careers. I find Kathy's path to becoming an artist both intriguing and assuring for artists who have had similar paths in the arts. From being visually inspired by the German artist Hans Belmar to her introduction to photography via musician Leon Russell, Vargas's non-traditional route to becoming an artist is nothing short of validating. In this first excerpt, Kathy describes meeting musician Leon Russell, rock and roll photographers, and her introduction to photography. I wasn't really integrated into any kind of a music. So what happened is I was on my way to check on the painting. I wanted to enter it in a contest. I was working on it in class, and I had to check and see if it was going to be dry by the time I needed it. I needed it for a show. Um, and so on my way there, there, Fiesta used to be in Hemisphere Plaza at the time. And I didn't want to have to go through Fiesta. I thought, oh, this is going to be a horrible mess. So I thought, if I go alongside the convention center, I can take a bridge. There used to be a bridge. I can take the bridge, and it will get me to the back door of the Mexican Cultural Institute. Mm-hmm. So I was taking this side path and ran into this huge man with very long hair and a beautiful portfolio case. And I started staring at his portfolio case. And uh, I, I asked him where he'd gotten it. And he said, oh, I'm from San Francisco. The portfolio case is from San Francisco. And then he started asking me what was going on, and I explained Fiesta to him. And then he asked me if I was going to the show that night. And he named about four different bands, and I only knew one of them was. But I thought, oh, it would be pleasant to hear that band. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, okay. He said, come by the hotel, and I'll give you a couple of tickets. Well, what happened is that I did indeed go by the hotel and, and met Leon Russell, who was a rock and roll star mm-hmm. at the time, and a very nice person, and met a lot of other great people. And they were basically the people who, who did two things. The one thing, I was, I was at Hayes, and I was, I, I was at Hayes, and I was learning darkroom. I was learning different darkroom techniques because we did graphic animation. Uh, but I wasn't, aside from the animation camera, I knew how to run the animation camera, but I didn't know how to run a 35 millimeter camera, which is kind of funny because the animation camera is much more complicated. And I'd never really done 35 millimeter work. Uh, so what happened is that when I started meeting these people, the other people I met were the photographers who were standing in the wings, who were the the rock and roll photographers, and they were absolutely wonderful. They would let me pick up their cameras and use their cameras every now and then. They started introducing me into photography. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that that Leon Russell and the shelter people, that's what the group was called, did, was that they literally opened up a world for me. Mm -hmm. Because up to that time, I had been pretty much a San Antonio resident exclusively. I think I'd gone, I'd taken a plane ride to Dallas ever in my life. Uh-huh. I'd taken the train to Laredo once uh-huh. with my parents, and that was about it. I wasn't traveled. I was uh-huh. about 20 years old, and I was pretty much an innocent, uh, mm-hmm. and very much a local person and an east side person who had ventured downtown. And they literally, because they were doing promotion and they wanted to help, wanted me to help them with local promotion, yes. uh, I started getting around the whole city and meeting people in, in the music industry, meeting disc jockeys and going to different radio stations and, and handing out records to them. 
And this was all in the mid-60s? This was all, no, this was all in the very the, early the late, 70s. Around, oh, okay. Around 1970s. Well, actually, 69, 70, 71, right around there. Well, that's right. I, I guess we yeah. uh, um, we mentioned that you were born in 1950. Yeah. Okay. So I was about 20. And, it, and then, uh, once I, I started taking photography at the Southwest Craft Center, I got an interest in it. And around 71, I started taking photography at the Southwest Craft Center and really fell in love with it. And because I knew all of this, these music people, because I knew booking agents by now, I would get jobs to photograph the rock and roll bands. And so it was relatively lucrative. By that time, I, I was ready to go back to college. So it was a, a kind of a shifting schedules thing where I would be, I was working on, on specific jobs for Hay Studios. I was working uh, freelance rock and roll photography and I was going to San Antonio College. But they really did open up the world to me. Kathy's chance meeting with musician Leon Russell seems to be a precursor to a significant time in her life where she enrolls at the University of Texas at San Antonio to begin work on her BFA. While at UTSA, she continues to perfect her photographic technique, engages in intellectual tug of war with her professors and mentors, and something I find most interesting, starts to make connections between her personal history and identity to what she is learning in her Chicano art and pre-Columbian art classes. These classes, Kathy cites, is having a big influence on her. Interviewer Jacinto Quirarte describes these as moments where Kathy is enlarging her scope of experience. When I think about the connections between art making and personal experience, I can't help but believe that in these moments lie the root of Kathy's creative practice the merging of technical expertise with personal memory and cultural experience seems to be a common thread in Chicana art. In Kathy's recollection of her family's stories, we are witness to the Mexican-American experience in South Texas and the articulation of her Chicana identity, an identity that Quirarte in this next segment describes as uncertain. Where does this uncertainty come from? What is the root of it? I believe the answers to those questions are as diverse as the Chicana experience. So when, when did you um, decide to uh, go to uh, UTSA? Well, I guess it was the next logical step after SAT. And that, that was, you know, there, there weren't too many public places to go to school mm-hmm. uh, in San Antonio. And so that was, that was one of the, that was the main choice, really. Uh-huh unless I wanted to pay a lot of money to go to a not-so-good not art department, which is, was the case at Trinity and places like that. And, and so I started going to UTSA in 1977 and didn't go, did not go full-time. I was going part-time the whole time that I was in the bachelor's program because I was working. I was working. I was continuing to work part-time at the place that made the TV commercials. Mm. I was working part-time for Bob Maxim, who was a commercial photographer. Mm. So I was doing different different photographic things. Who were the uh, the major influences there? I, I assume it was in photography. That's that's hard because in a sense, by the time I went to UTSA, I was pretty much formed as an artist, I think, and I did change, and I do have to give well, me all that credit point, you were for what, that. Twenty-seven. Yeah, I was. I was twenty-seven years old, and I had already had shows. Uh, I had already been in photo shows. Um, I had even gotten into one of the Art League shows, which was the big thing in San Antonio at the time. I I have to give credit to Jim Newberry, who really improved my technique tremendously. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And because I was doing documentary work at the time, and he was an excellent documentary photographer, I did learn quite a bit from him as far as as technical expertise, how to frame things, how to see more completely. He taught me the, the very beginnings of the 4x5 camera. Um, and I think when I give credit to Neil, the two things I have to give credit to Neil for are his teaching me the 4x5 more completely, which is the camera that, that is still my favorite camera, mm-hmm. um, and and my fighting with him. <laughs> because but he was another male in that respect. He was another male in that respect. He didn't mean to be, I don't think. And it's funny, I don't think he expected a student who would argue with him. <laughs> but unfortunately, or fortunately, Mel had taught me to argue. Uh-huh. Um, and it was really funny because we really did not get along for the first year that I was at UTSA. Mm-hmm. We really, we were coming from completely different backgrounds, uh, both personally and artistically. And he, he did not like, I was doing portraits at the time, and he really did not like my what doing portraits. What did he want portraits. you to do? That's a good question. He did say that. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't bother to tell me that. But he didn't like, he, you know, and he was very honest. He said, I, it's my problem. I don't like portraits. Mm-hmm. You know, and I persisted in doing portraits for quite a, a long time until I really got into the 4x5. And the 4x5 really doesn't lend itself to portraiture unless you have a huge studio because people yeah. move and, get blur but um he i think he was the one who in a sense made me fight for what i wanted to do and and made me question myself as an artist that there was a give and take with us that that he would challenge me and i would challenge him back we would push it was literally like a, a tug of war that he would pull and i would pull back and you know an, an intellectual tug of war of course but that that, that was going on. Of course, you know, I always credit both the Chicano art classes and the pre-Columbian art classes mm-hmm. that I took with you. And I think in that sense, learning was different for me at UTSA, that I wasn't so much learning photography because I had pretty much, I mm-hmm. was pretty much set in, in, in my ways of photography, but that I was learning from others. Your, your yeah, scope of experience. Exactly. And I got a lot out of the pre-Columbian classes because what happened is that I began to remember the stories that my dad used to tell me. Because he always used to say that we were indigenous people, that we weren't Spaniards. And he had enough of his own family history to know that we came from Oaxaca and that there was probably some... And he never said Zapotec and Mixtec. That's what I learned in your class. Uh But he, he said, we're from Oaxaca. And he always used to talk about the bat deity and he didn't call it a bat deity but he used to say there was this this god that that looked like a bat so he had some of it from his own ancestry my mother on the other hand was always mildly embarrassed when my grandmother would say that 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 side of the family was Wichol you know my mother would go no we're not no we're not we're French we're Spanish My grandmother would say, Oh, yeah, because they were from Zacatecas, and she would say, You know, you know, she would talk about how the Wichol would come down from the mountain, and how we were. She, she would say that we were descended from both Wichol and French because we did have, you know, she had one wonderful family picture, and I don't know who's got it now. That was, I don't know how many greats a grandmother, and here was this little short, squat Indian woman, and this tall, lean. European-looking man with pale hair and a pale face, and this this bigote that went out for miles that twirled upward, and 
had must have had tons of mustache wax on it. And that was, you know, that was where it came together for, for her mm-hmm. side of the family, for my mom's side of the family. Now, as long as we're on that, uh, in a way, this is a little backtracking, but yeah, I think it's sorry. all right. Uh, <laughs> since your mother, like like so many uh, Mexican-Americans, Hispanics, Chicanos, yeah. Latinos, uh, have a, an uncertain sense of their own identity, so yeah. that, that they, they try to grapple with it. Uh, in your mother's case, if I understand it, she wanted to emphasize the European yeah. rather than the indigenous. Yes. So how, how did that affect you? In a sense, it didn't because my grandmother always argued with her, <laughs> kind of set her so back on the course. she brought the thing down to earth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess the, the other thing is, is my mother was, she was, my mother was never a Chicana. Even later on, even when I called myself a Chicana, she would always tell me, don't you call me a Chicana. I'm not a Chicana. I'm a Mexican-American. And, but and actually, mother, she was a Mexican, you know. What did your mother do? Did she worked. Uh, she worked. She worked. She was a sales clerk for a long time. She worked at a paint store. I remember. She worked at Jones Paint, and then she worked at SolarServe for a long time, and then she started working at Kelly Air Force Base. Uh-huh. Uh, but even at Kelly, she was some kind of a clerk type person. Sure. Kathy's family shaped her artistic practice. Particularly, it was their political involvement that informed her interest in politics. San Antonio was the site of an active and important Chicano political movement. It was also home to a notable Chicano and Chicana art scene highlighted by art collectives such as Consafo, a group whose work and efforts helped define Chicano and Chicana art. From her awareness of the Brown Berets to learning about politics via her mother's involvement with grassroots organization, Kathy was familiar with Chicano politics, but not with the art of the movement. Kathy would eventually be invited to join Consafo. Joining the group as a young photographer, she credited the collective with her development from a student to a professional artist. Kathy's time with Consafo helped her articulate a relationship to Chicano politics and art. In Ruben C. Cordova's book, Consafo, Kathy states, The Consafo group emerged at a time when we weren't seeing ourselves anywhere. Chicano artists were not mentioned in the newspaper. There was no clear visual image by anyone who had my life experience. Gonzafo let the community know that they could be reflected in art, and they reflected that image to the community. It showed the community that their cultural experience was valid and aesthetically interesting. In this next segment, Vargas reflects on a time when the Chicano movement was emerging in San Antonio and her proximity to it. You also uh, mentioned... Gilberto Tarín. He uh, had a gallery. Yes, he was a Chicano art. Oh, that's when the Chicano movements were first happening. That's what we talked about. That's when the Chicano movements were first happening. And I was relatively unaware of them because I was hanging out with filmmakers and rock and roll people, not artists. Mm -hmm. Had nothing to do with being Latina or being Chicana. Had to do with the fact that I was not specifically hanging out with arts types anymore that much. I had been with Martin Ibarra, but Martin, it was too early. It was like the 60s in a sense. So in San Antonio, Mm -hmm. it was too early for that movement. What I remember saying about Gilberto, it must have been around 1972. It was when I was working at Hayes. Yeah, you mentioned 72, 73 when we last talked. Exactly. And he had just come back from Mexico. So he really didn't know 
what the Chicano art movement was either. He had his, He had been at San Carlos? He had been at San Carlos, oh, okay. and he had his education in San Carlos. He was familiar now, with Is Leos he Andres. from here? He's from San Antonio. Okay. But yeah, he, I wrote down that he's a Chicano. Yeah, he's a Chicano. He's from San Antonio. But both he and my friend Diana Rodriguez were educated in Mexico. They went to school at San Carlos, both of them. And so he... And I Diana mean, Rodriguez is from here? Yes. And they both, you know, she's a Chicano artist. Now, I don't know if Gilberto ever actually became it. I think he finally did say he was Chicano, but it took him a long time, mainly because he, he missed it. You know, by the time he came back, it was happening. And I remember having that conversation with him. It must have been around 72, 73. He had a little gallery and he said, I've just been asked to join this group of Chicano artists. He said, I don't know what that is. See, now, the other thing is that I knew about a movement of, of Chicanos in, other, in political areas. I, when I was 17, I knew about the Brown Berets. I hung out with Tom Cahill. Who, but it was direct political action. It was not about And uh, who was Tom Cahill? Tom Cahill was, had a, a, a little shop on Frio City Road. He was the person who helped try to tear down the good government, oh, okay. which was the, the powers that be in, the, in right. San Antonio in the 50s and 60s, and it was all Anglo. The city was already half Hispanic or half Latino or whatever you wanted to call it at the time, and, and he, it was still very much controlled by Anglo businessmen, Anglo old, old money families. Now, was Tom uh, African-American or no, he Anglo? No, was Anglo. And you said a little shop on Rio Street? Oh, Frio, Frio. Frio City Road. It's a good thing I asked you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, Frio City Road. He, he had a little newspaper. I wish I still had a copy of it. But he had a little newspaper that was very much a political grassroots activist mm -hmm. newspaper. And he was finally arrested and threatened by the police department and, and told to leave town. That's how dangerous he was. But it was at the time that the Southwest Voters Registration Project was coming into being. Yes. Uh, it was a time when there was real political activity. I knew about that because my family was very political. Mm -hmm. My mother was part of COPS uh, when I was about 17, 18 years old when they were just forming. Uh -huh. So I knew about political movements, but my mother never called herself a Chicana. And I never really heard the word mm -hmm. Chicano or Chicana very much. So I was very politicized, but I wasn't familiar with the word. And I certainly wasn't familiar with the artists. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned that, that from 1975, you started at San Antonio College, but you had yeah. heard of the uh, Chicanos before that. I had heard of the Chicanos only briefly from Gilberto, who, again, he told me he told me in 72 or 73, he said, I've been asked to join this group of Chicano artists. He and that was Consafo? I, oh. I don't know if it was Consapo Los Quemados. It, it might have been Los Quemados. No, Los Quemados um, came around 75. Okay, so it was Consapo then. It and then Consapo. Los Quemados were actually reacted against. Uh, oh, okay. And that was Carmen Lomas Garza and Cesar, uh, Cesar and Felipe. Amado Peña. And, uh, I think Felipe it, Reyes. Now, Felipe Reyes was a leader in Tlaquilo, which is oh. the Aztec word for writer, artist, which is really the same thing in pre-Hispanic Mexico. And then since no one understood what uh, that meant, they called themselves the painters of the new race or the new oh, people, oh. or pintores de la nueva raza. Oh, okay. And uh, then they became subsumed under the, and then they became the oh, okay. And that's when Mel came in. Yeah. Mel See, Casas. Yeah. 
And and that's the thing is is the only time I'd heard of Chicano art was King Juan Gilberto asked me what it was, and he said I've never heard of that. And I said I don't, I can't help you. I don't know uh-huh. what it is either. Uh-huh. So it was interesting because it was the terminology uh-huh. that was the stumbling block that we had never heard the term. At, at that point, if somebody had said to me, "Do you want to be a futurist?" Because uh-huh. I hadn't had art history yet, yeah. I wouldn't would know have what known. to tell them either. So uh-huh. it was like, ah, uh, I don't know what that is. So it was literally a term. Dealing with political realities in an artistic way is a distinct skill, a skill that Kathy has developed throughout her creative career and continues to develop today. In listening to Kathy speak about the methods she employs to draw her viewers in, I'm reminded about how complicated it is to make artwork about social issues. The artist is tasked with merging content and form in a way that requires a unique and responsible knowledge of an issue coupled with technical experience. Kathy employs experimental techniques for social political ends. The collection at the Archives of American Art is home to an artwork by Kathy titled Missing Number Three that she made in 1992. This piece is a series of six hand-colored gelatin silver prints arranged to form a triptych. In this work, I see images and symbols of life and death, such as an extended hand, a full skeleton, a still bird, all wrapped and contained within what seems like a bed of thorns and feathers. There seems to be a transitioning happening within the work, from life to death to resurrection. Kathy's distinguishable style, including the use of multiple exposure, the hand coloring with muted shades, and the presence of light and darkness, both physically and metaphorically, create a dreamlike image. As my eyes scan the layers of this work, I noticed a faint design bordering the edges of the photographs. As I enlarged the artwork and got closer and closer, I realized the design was actually text. In this next segment, Kathy shares more about her artistic inspiration, how she seduces the viewer, and the meaning of visual language. Um, As for influences, that's a good one. Uh, There are a lot, and a lot fewer artistic ones or photographic ones than than one would think. Really, literature. Literature has been a major, major influence. Um, Garcia Marquez, uh, Akutegawa, a lot of the Latino writers, uh, Isabel Allende certainly. Some of that magic realism, but even more important than the magic realism, I think the political reality. They both, both Garcia Marquez and Isabel Allende deal with political realities in a very uh, artistic way that, in a sense, seduces you into dealing with the politics. And I like that. I think that's what I try to do. I know that's what I try to do, that I try to make a beautiful object that will seduce you into dealing with a difficult issue, whether it's political or personal, whether it's the pain of of death from, from a personal loss or the pain of death from a political loss. It's the same idea. It, it's that idea that that you can be seduced into realizing the pain if you're seduced, literally, if, if it's about beauty, if it's about something catching the eye and being very gratifying visually. Um, now, it, it really does, it's worlds apart uh, 
in formal terms from uh, someone who's quite literal, like Rupert Garcia, okay. who uh, very graphically focuses on almost poster-like uh, images that, that impact yeah. on, on people. So you, you're not talking about anything that is that specific yeah. about Mexico or about the, the well, farm workers or anything like that. Actually, I did one piece called Missing which was about the desaparecidos in Latin America. And it had text, so the text was very explicit. And it did talk about the idea that, that there were missing, uh, that our tax dollars might have made missing. Mm -hmm. And so that was pretty explicit. But again, it's a beautiful piece, Yes, I think. I mean, yes. but I, I, it, most people say it, it's this huge standing figure. It, and and it, it is personalized. It comes from a little clipping I found in a Guatemalan newspaper about uh, a woman whose husband was missing, uh, the father of her child was missing. And she was advertising, wanting to know if anybody had seen him. Uh, and so uh, the first figure is, is his cutout. Um, draped in lace and carrying flowers as if he were walking towards her but there's no one in it it's it's like a ghost it's a ghost image um, and the second one is that same image standing at her shoulder at her right shoulder while she's sitting there cradling her child so it's the idea of creating uh, a context for him of, of the fact that he might have at one point brought her hearts and flowers that he was the person who was supposed to be standing behind her for her or for her child, that that here she was and she was cradling this child and all of a sudden she was a mother alone and, and that he had disappeared and that he was gone. And the only way to create a family portrait was to outline his missingness. And then the last piece has him prone. It's the same figure, but instead of being white, it's black. And it's prone and there are flowers growing over him. And it's the idea that, that he might be buried in some unmarked grave. Uh, and that our tax dollars might have created his missingness. And you and did this... Uh, I did this around 92, um, 91 or 92, somewhere in there. Um, and it, because of the text, it's very explicit, but the text is written around the piece, so you have to walk up to the piece. So you have to see it oh, visually. Oh, you have a text. Yeah, it has a text. So it, it's very, oh, that is pretty much the text around the piece. Oh, okay. And so the message is explicit. But you have to walk up to it and engage with it visually before you begin to read the text. But that's unusual for your work. Not anymore. I mean, oh, okay. I've been doing a lot of things with text. Okay. I've been doing a lot of different things with text. Um, but I do deal with them gently. In other words, I don't... And I love Malakias Montoya's work. I absolutely love Malakias's work. But my work is different um, in that... It's not as aggressive as his is. And I honestly don't know whether that's because of my generation or because of the fact that I'm a female and both Rupert and Malakias are male. You know, because even when you look at the Latinas, at the females, most of them don't have that confrontation. Uh, it's generally much more positive and, in a sense, almost much more ethereal. When I think, look at at Yolanda. Now, Yolanda Lopez, some of her work is very confrontational. Her videos yes. are very confrontational. But her Guadalupe's are very protective. Judy, now, Judy Baca's work, in a sense, is more confrontational. But again, it's very visually beautiful mm -hmm. and visually glorious, mm -hmm. so that you really want to engage in it with it on a visual level. Mm -hmm. And then you get hit with the message. So 
not not I mean it's, but the same thing happens with Malakias. I mean it's very visually engaging. It's mm-hmm. very visually rich. And I think what's interesting, it's funny because you mentioned Rupert's work. What's interesting to me is that Rupert's work is very much about field painting, color field, and and flat, the flattness right. of the plane. And so there are a lot of art issues going on at the same time that there are other issues going on, political or social issues going on. And I think in a sense that's that's what we all do. And that for me is what was a struggle and what I think of as a transitional period. Uh, because when I was in graduate school, they really wanted me to deal only with formal elements and not anything else. When I got out of, before I went into to, to UTSA and after I got out of UTSA, I was in full realization of all of the political realities that were going on at the time. Now, the lucky thing, in a sense, or the unlucky thing, is that while I was at UTSA, it was a relatively mellow period. It was the 70s. I got out of UTSA in the early 80s. Um, and so it was a relatively calm period. We had gained a lot. So there wasn't as much stuff to deal with. So I didn't fight my teachers as much because there didn't seem to be in a sense, at that point in time, a point yes. to my fighting. It's like, well, things are pretty good. Who am I going to pick it? Jimmy Carter? He's pretty nice, you know. Um, so it was, a, in a sense, it was a different era. Mm-hmm. I, went, I went into UTSA in the mid-70s. You know, by that time, Vietnam had happened. We felt we had That's won. Right. You know, the troops had come home. We hadn't prolonged the war. You know, things had changed for the better. It was know? a breathing spell. It was a breathing spell. Of course, Watergate was happening, but it was even post-Watergate. But even that, you know, yeah. yeah, it had happened. So uh, we were in the Jimmy Carter era. We were in an, a Grace era, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But then all of a sudden, with Reagan coming in, it was like almost the minute I got out of graduate school, things began to go topsy-turvy again. Yeah. Uh, and there were issues again. And I found myself at the Guadalupe, which is a perfect, which was a perfect place to deal with those issues. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing for me was to find a way that I could do both form and content. And that was the big issue, I think, of my artwork. And how did you come to, um, well, the first part of the question deals with how you came to the text. How did you build up into using texts? Um, I, it was real simple. I built up into using text because sometimes people weren't getting the point. And I realized that that leaving it only to the visual has a limitation. Mm -hmm. And that when you want to only hint at something, or when it's a simpler issue, a simpler visual, you don't have to deal with text. The process of developing as an artist is a journey that never ends. I often wonder about the artist's identity and how to define our role as art makers. What defines an artist? My favorite answer to that question is the devotion and commitment you have to your practice. The artistic journey seems to be one filled with highs and lows, with clarity and frustration, with moments of pause and growth. How do artists attain a practice? How do we stay committed to this creative path? Will inspiration continue to surface in unexpected places and moments? In Kathy's case, her devotion to provide a voice not only for herself, 
but for the community that she has been shaped and inspired by, seems to push her forward. Realizing the artwork you make has purpose is affirming and energizing. In our last segment, Kathy describes a moment of clarity about her work and her purpose as an artist. This is who I am. And I guess that for me, you know, certainly something that's come crystallized to me, certainly in the last five or so years, since 1990, since the death of Ted Womble, who taught me how important it was to to remain politicized, and who in a sense repoliticized in in the late 80s and and then passed away in 89. I guess what happened to me when, when I lost Ted was that that I realized that it wasn't just my loss of my friend who I used to go folk art hunting with. It was our loss of a voice. And the same thing happened to me when Willie Velasquez died, that I realized we were losing voices that we really couldn't live without. What was the last one? Uh, Willie Velasquez. Oh, uh, oh yeah. yeah. Both of those men, one white and one Latino, had been very adamant to work against racism, to work toward empowering people of color, especially Latinos and Chicanos. When I felt the loss of their two voices, and they died in the same year, or within a, sa- a time period yeah. of a year, I realized that we all had to take a slide, that all of us could no longer be silent. That I had, I think the other reason I had been silent is because I saw so many good voices out there doing it better than I could ever do it. I thought, oh great, they're taking care of it, I don't need to yeah, worry. Right. Um, but then when both of those voices were silenced, it was like, whoa, I really need to be more vocal. And so I think that's, that's why I, it became crystal clear to me that it couldn't be about becoming rich and famous and that it had to be about making a difference because I can't, there's no room for being selfish. In, in this world, at this time, you know, there's no room for being selfish. It was okay to be selfish in the 70s because there were great people taking care of it. It's not okay now. There are really bad people out there trying to do it in. Exactly. What, what became apparent to me was that, yes, I am a Chicana. The Guadalupe the for me is a wonderful reality check. You know, to where I realize that my life is important, not because I'm rich and famous or not. My, you know, in other words, my life is not unimportant because I'm not rich and famous. My life is important because I can be of value to people. And I think that's a wonderful reality check. Um, and yeah, I love helping other artists. I think that's part of my job. I love that uh, because I want to see them succeed because they are wonderful. I mean, when you see great art, you want to see it succeed. I feel like an essential part in creating and developing an artistic path is to learn from the artists around you. Whether that learning comes from experiencing a work of art, listening to an artist talk, or from forming relationships with other artists in your community, artistic growth seems to be fueled by a sense of purpose. In Kathy's case, that purpose is being of value to others. Kathy is a trailblazer. For me, she is the quintessential artist, the artist's artist. An artist whose practice is clearly defined by her devotion to purpose and craft. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman at the Archives of American Art. It was edited by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble. 
with Harlan Parker conducting. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. The Archives is grateful to Mari Hernandez for her time, insight, and inspiration. This guest-curated episode receives support from the Smithsonian American Women's History Initiative. If you enjoy Articulated, please consider rating and sharing it. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit aaa.si.edu support. Thank you.